Dr Chris Winter is a neurologist and world-leading sleep expert. The best-selling author of The Sleep Solution, Dr Winter has now turned his focus to helping children with their sleep. His new book, The Rested Child, Why Your Tired, Wired or Irritable Child May Have a Sleep Disorder and How to Help, delves into the world of hidden, uh, sorry, the world of sleep disorders among children. Experts describe sleeplessness as a hidden health crisis for young people, with 10% of children suffering from sleep disorders, but well over half are not diagnosed properly. Dr Winter says every year tens of thousands of children are treated for diseases such as diabetes, learning and attention disorders and chronic pain, when the real root cause may actually be a sleep disorder. Dr Winter's also a sleep consultant for, for professional athletes working with teams in the NBA, the NFL and Major League Baseball. He is with us from Charlottesville, Virginia and thank you, lovely to talk. Thank you, Catherine. It's a pleasure to be on your show. So the desire to write a book specifically about children and their sleep issues, is it because it is a big topic? It is. It was a big topic. It was a big topic before COVID. And once COVID happened, the number we see adults and kids in our clinic just for sleep disorders, that number in our clinic and clinics everywhere just skyrocketed. And that growing number of sleep disorders in kids coupled with sort of a diminishing number of individuals who have any real training in sleep, including pediatricians that treat these problems, kind of created this compounded effect and and we felt it was time to sort of shine a light on it. We often think with children's sleep that the focus is about how to get a baby to sleep, but the skill of sleep, and you describe it as a skill, is lifelong. And do you need to learn how to do it, and not just as an infant, but as a child? Well, I think this is a good point. It's impossible not to sleep. So there is nobody who has the problem or no child has the problem that they can't sleep. But I do think the way that we talk about sleep, the way we pattern sleep and and model it for our kids, what happens if a child goes to bed and can't fall asleep? What is your response to that? I think we can create anxieties and performance problems that don't necessarily need to be there. Meaning that, you know, if a child goes to bed and is comes out of his bedroom after an hour saying that I can't sleep. What is the response to that? It shouldn't be, well, if you don't get to sleep, you're going to fail your math test and you're not going to make the, the rugby team and you're going to be a, you know, that's not the response. It should be, well, that's okay because it's natural not to sleep. So why don't you just keep reading your comic book and I promise you sleep will come. Like those are the kinds of encouraging things we need to be saying as kids because it really sets the platform and the foundation for how we view sleep as adults. That's interesting because um, we can all think back to our childhood of having the torch on at night under the you know under the yes. covers or whatever. <laughs> I used to love to play imaginary games because it was the only time I got to myself away from irritating siblings and having to do things. And um, so, how do you approach this idea of that special time um, for kids going to bed, but not necessarily wanting to go straight to sleep? How do you talk about it and? When is it an issue? You know, it's funny that you said something just now that's really important, that you found it to be a positive experience. I do too. When you, If you're going to threaten me, you're not going to get very far threatening me with time in bed awake. I think it's a lovely time. I can think about a upcoming vacation or something I could have done better, handled better with my children. I like being in bed awake. So 
having kids sort of have a plan for that. Okay, we're going to put you to bed now. You know, we told our kids when they were about seven years old, you can go to sleep whenever you want to. Like, I need you in your bedroom. Do not come outside unless you see somebody you don't recognize or smell smoke. But in terms of when you actually get into the bed and turn the light out to initiate sleep, I'm going to leave that up to you to decide. You're a big seven-year-old now and practically an adult, whatever. You choose that. Now, what we didn't tell them was we'll wake you up about the same time every day with a smile. So you really kind of give them that sort of dominion that you're not under any sort of pressure to fall asleep at this designated moment. It's sort of like punishing a child for not being hungry for dinner. I mean, they usually will be, but every now and then they may not have much of an appetite. You would never force a child to eat. You would say, oh, well, it's kind of strange. You're not hungry for the lasagna I made, but okay, you're excused. You can go do your homework. So I think creating that space where kids can go to sleep if they feel sleepy, but it's also okay for them not to be sleepy, not for them to go to sleep at the moment you've determined that they're, you know, that it's time for them to go to bed. And, and really giving them that space can be so helpful that we don't create that sort of performance anxiety with sleep. What if they're getting into bad habits, however? They're awake half the night and they're late to school. Yeah, so that's important. So to me, I think that we as a culture, we focus way too much on bedtime. In fact, if you ask 100 people, what is the hallmark of a good sleeper? They're probably going to give you some variation on the, on the, on the, the, the theme of speed to unconsciousness. Whoever falls asleep fastest is a good sleeper. So to me, I think we just need to pay much more attention to the back end, and that is wake times. And so, you know, tardiness only happens if you allow a child to be tardy. So growing up in my family, my father was an ex-football player and a coach. There was no capacity whatsoever to say to him, I'm tired. I need to sleep some more. I'm going to go to school tardy. Like my son attends the United States Naval Academy. I can promise you there is no such thing as tardy at the United States Naval Academy. So if we enforce that wake up time kindly, humanely, not in a mean way. The bedtime always takes care of itself. So I would challenge my kids, go ahead and stay up all night reading your comic books. That's fine. It's really, it's fine with me. Just understand that you will pay a little bit of a price tomorrow when I wake you up at 630 and put you on the school bus and we'll pick you up because I'm not going to give you any opportunity to sleep until it's time to go to bed. Our brains need food, they need water, and they need sleep. So the problems that people have when they can't sleep are not that they can't sleep, it's that their sleep is unpredictable and inefficient, and we can fix that with scheduling. That's why COVID was such a problem. When kids were out of school and missed out on those schedulings, it really created a lot of sleep chaos in their lives. It's another whole debate as to whether adolescents in particular should be getting woken so early in school hours and everything else. But, Absolutely. But yeah. listening to you, it is what it is. And what you're saying is focus on the awake time that's where you put your requirements in and the sleep will sort itself out. Absolutely. I always tell people, if you don't like Brussels sprouts, I can make you like Brussels sprouts. I'll lock you in a room full of Brussels sprouts and at some point you'll eat them. So it's really about that focus of, look, sleep is a difficult thing. We know it's a biological certainty. It's impossible not to do it, but that doesn't mean you can do it right now. And so that's the kind of flexibility we want to give our kids. Because when you talk to people who are good sleepers, they almost have this sort of quizzical nature about them. Like, I don't know, I just go to bed and fall asleep. I don't give it much thought. 
it's the thought about the sleep that is the problem. When you define insomnia, it's not an inability to sleep. It's the fear of an inability to sleep. And when that fear really gets going, it not only starts to create chaos with sleep, but it starts to create chaos with the perception of sleep. So a child may very well come down and say, I did not sleep at all last night, which might not be the, the, the recollection of the parent who opened up the door at midnight and looked inside and saw the kid asleep. So the kid's not lying. It's actually their perception that they were just awake all night long because of the, as the anxiety about sleep builds, those misperceptions can build as well too. Can we talk about sleep disorders? First, what is it that makes something reach the level of being a disorder as opposed to what we've just been discussing, which is perfectly normal kind of anomalies that we'll all experience at some point during life? What are some of the sleep disorders? Sure, that's a great question. So a sleep disorder is something that is interfering with the intrinsic nature of sleep so that that sleep quality is, is no longer present or at least present where it should be. And if somebody said, look, I've got 15 seconds to figure out if somebody's got a sleep problem, what people should be looking for is excessive sleepiness. So the two kinds of people that come into our clinic are the people who can't sleep, which we've kind of talked about that, or the kids that can't sleep. They can sleep, but they may not be sleeping the way they want to, when they want to, how they want to. There's something that is not satisfactory about it. But the other group is the group that falls asleep all over the place. They're sleeping and taking two hour naps. They come home and they go right to sleep and sleep for an hour before they wake up and do their homework. And the problem with children is if you've got one of these kids who's got a disorder of sleep and they're hypersomnic, they're sleeping too much, that's not necessarily something that a lot of parents are going to complain about. In fact, when you get together with your parent group and you're all talking about your kids, you're like, well, I don't know, my kid puts himself to bed at night. He asks to take naps. Every time we put him down to take a nap, he goes to sleep immediately and we have to wake him up. I mean, that kind of sounds like a dream child. And so you don't really see these things manifest until they get into school and their time and their academics are starting to compete with this heightened need for sleep. So to me, that's a really good sign to look for that the kid who wants to sleep an entire weekend away or you're having trouble waking up even though they're getting adequate amounts of sleep that really you know, characterizes a sleep disorder. Some of them um, surprised me in terms of applying them to children, something like sleep apnea, for example. It can have a physiological cause, but we often think of it as something related to aging and putting on weight and some of the changes that can happen in the throat with age. But it is, a, it is absolutely um, a, a, an issue for children, sleep apnea and snoring. Let's just pick a few and, and, and look into them, please. Sure. No, and sleep apnea is a great one because I think everybody has the idea that sleep apnea patients are you know, 38 year old overweight truck drivers, you know, that snore loudly throughout the night. And sure, that is that's probably a decent stereotype of one. But the idea that a kid can't have it is not true. And and, and a lot of children with sleep apnea don't really have significant snoring. So looking out for prolonged bedwetting, school performance, even growth changes, you know, that little growth chart that when you go to the pediatrician, they kind of plot your kids height and weight on and they tracking along that 78% line or something. And suddenly at a visit, your kid has dropped down into the 40th percentile in height suddenly, even though you and your partner are quite tall. It's amazing how sleep disturbances can affect even growth hormone secretion in kids. So that's a big one. Um, you know, I think that we've talked about circadian disorders and, and like you said, oh, we could do a whole 
hour-long discussion about school start times and how does a school start time relate to an individual child's intrinsic circadian rhythm. And we talk about these all the time. Are you a night owl? Are you a morning person? These are genetically inherited traits we get from our parents and our kids are no different. So when a kid graduates valedictorian from their high school, are they really the smartest or are they the ones whose circadian rhythm was most aligned to that school schedule? Um, and so these are things that parents need to be aware of. I think narcolepsy is another big one. These are individuals who have a genetic disorder where they don't produce chemicals that help them feel awake the way an average child should. And, and this usually rears up in sort of middle school or late high school where these kids are just so sleepy. They're dropping the sports they play in their academic pursuits. Their grades aren't very good. They're falling asleep in class. And they often get shunted down the, oh, well, your child is depressed or your child is having attention problems. And I think parents arming themselves with the knowledge about sleep problems, you know, kicking their legs at night. A lot of times you spend the night with your kid in a hotel when you're going on a trip and you're like, my God, my child kicked his legs hundreds of times during the night. That could be a sleep disorder. So there are about 88 diagnosable sleep disorders out there. And I just don't think we as parents you know, really often are particularly aware of these things because we don't generally watch our kids sleep. Perhaps 10%, I think, of children have a diagnosable sleep disorder. We were talking about the, um, uh, how to define this, whereas perhaps maybe uh, two out of every three will have some kind of issue, some kind of sleep problem before they reach, um, which reach adulthood. Um, you also, I think, are of a view that, you know, before you get a diagnosis for something like ADHD, uh, check out whether some of what is being um, regarded as a symptom may actually have a sleep cause. Absolutely. That, that, what could be easier than talking to your child's doctor and saying, hey, look, I, I read a, a book. I heard a guy on a radio interview that talked about sleep. And my child does have some interesting aspects to his sleep. He does seem to be tired. He complains about being tired a lot. How would you feel about some sort of sleep evaluation prior to you know, us evaluating our child for depression or starting or ADHD or starting an anti-anxiety medication? I always joke that if you're pediatrician or your doctor says, no, that's not a great idea, then you should probably get another doctor. I mean, the worst case scenario is the study comes back normal and you just move on with the evaluation you were doing before. The best case scenario is something gets turned up. We just saw a patient today, three years old, who had 21 10 second or longer breathing problems every hour that he slept. This is a three-year-old and he had sleep apnea that would be considered moderate in an adult. And the only reason this woman brought her in was because she read an article. Uh, the doctor didn't think the sleep study was necessary. And so she just called our office by herself and said, my doctor doesn't think it's necessary, but I think it is. So we'll be sending a letter to that doctor. <laughs> uh, thanks Parents like, are always right. That's, yeah. that's the thing here. You know your child better than anybody. Yeah. Things like teeth grinding, sleepwalking, sleep talking, are they things to worry about? Are they indicative of something or are they just part of the sleep experience some of us will have? So they can be. So, and again, that's where sort of that parental instinct sort of comes in, that most kids who experience sleep talking, which often we view as a normal variant, or sleepwalking, bedwetting, uh, even getting up and getting something to eat and not remembering it the next day or a night tear are to some degree considered normal variants in children. So what I always tell parents is, 
you know, follow these behaviors, get a little calendar out or a phone app. And every time your kid has an episode of screaming out, just indicate it on a calendar. And so after a few months, do you feel like the frequency is getting better? Is it getting worse? Is it staying the same? And at some point, if you feel instinctively that this is too much, like this is really disruptive and we're starting to see some you know, behavioral changes, school performance, there's, ne there's never anything wrong with taking a look at a sleep study to see if there's something dysfunctional about that child's sleep that's manifesting as the night tear. In other words, you, you might see an individual whose significant teeth grinding is actually causing something else or a child with acid and reflux, which you feel like is not particularly a problem because they don't really complain about it during the day. But a lot of children, because they're lying flat on their back when they sleep at night or having a lot more reflux at night, the reflux could be causing the sleep disruption, which is causing the, you know, waking up and screaming or the nightmares and whatnot. So when you treat the reflux that's seen on the sleep study, all of a sudden those things go away. Chris Winter is our guest. We're talking about his book, The Rested Child, Why Your Tired, Wired or Irritable Child May Have a Sleep Disorder and How to Help. Dr Winter is a neurologist and a world-leading sleep expert. Again, whether it's a disorder or whether it's a, a, a habit or something going on that perhaps falls short of that, um, we all want to help, at any stage of life, help someone get good sleep. Now, you mentioned anxiety before, whether it's an adult or whether it's a child. How big an issue is this in the inability to fall asleep and what can we do to help? I think it's huge. Um, and so I think that that answer probably has multiple answers in the sense that um, if you have a child with an anxiety disorder, often the treatment of the anxiety disorder will, will sort of help with their ability to sleep. Um, it all depends on kind of where you put your anxiety. So you know, more focused anxiety of, you know, school, social phobias, maybe they don't have any trouble with sleeping at night. But there is a certain degree of anxiety requirement for insomnia to work. If I meet a child and, and ask them, how long does it take you to fall asleep? And they say, you know, an hour or two. My first question is always, how do you feel about that? If the answer is, oh, I don't mind. I like being in bed awake. It's okay. I, I, it's a really nice time for me that I'm not sure necessarily we need to do much about that. But the anxiety can play a, a very big role. And, and once it kind of gets going, it, it, it really sort of takes on a, a, on a life of itself, meaning that a lot of times there's something in a child's life that started the insomnia. It was the divorce of the parents. It was not making the basketball team. It's something very trivial, you know, a relationship breakup. Something precipitates it, but it's the anxiety that perpetuates it a lot of time. That's the difference between the child who has the, difficult breakup with their significant other and then a week later they're right back and they're sleeping fine and it's like it never happened versus the other child who will tell us yeah I broke up with somebody a couple of years ago and I've never been able to sleep well since it's probably not the breakup that's causing the sleep problem there it's the anxiety that is developed around that so I think that addressing that is always extremely important um, I mean to like I said it really starts to become you know, shooting free throws in an empty gym versus shooting a free throw with a game on the line. It's it's a psychological construct that some people have a lot of, some people don't. I mean, you talk to some pro athletes about what were you thinking about during that shot that won the game? They seem to look at you like, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I, I don't remember. Like, how could you not remember that? It's because 
that doesn't create any anxiety in them. That's probably why they're a professional athlete on the United, you know, on the Australian or the New Zealand, you know, Olympic team because they they're able to control that performance anxiety to some degree. And that's what we're trying to help young people understand that, like you said, sleep's a skill. And we can learn to have a better relationship with it as we get older. You mentioned structure and how that had been so disrupted by the pandemic, um, and so and we talked earlier about how having a good awake time structure can take care of the sleep issue. Because if you're that naked, you 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 should just fall asleep. But we were also talking about you reading comics and me reading books, you know, under the covers with a torch when we were kids. Um, now it's those damn devices. Now, I don't know whether <laughs> blue light is on your um, radar or whether it is more just what we're doing to amp up those brains. Where do you stand with kids and technology and sleep? I stand very much in the camp of I don't like it. There's nothing really positive at all about kids and technology and sleep. Um, as a neurologist, I consider these things to be bordering on a drug kind of level of effect, meaning that these kids have a relationship with technology in a lot of cases that is almost addictive. It's it, you know, They're getting that little pop of dopamine every time they play that game or watch that funny video. You know, even things that are somewhat educational. I mean, you know, I've, I've talked to kids before that, you know, they were up all night because they wanted to know more about sea lions and their social hierarchy when they're on, you know, which is admirable. It's just not great for you to be doing that at three o'clock in the morning. It's just that ready technology. Oh, I was thinking about sea lions. Oh, I can just reach over here and grab this phone and learn as much as I want to about them right, right here, right now. So I think teaching kids to sort of create a space or a place for technology is so important. And our, we have a rule in our house that phones sleep in the kitchen. So we have a little place for everybody's phone, including my own, in the kitchen. So if you want to make a phone call or look something up, you can do it, but you'll do it in the kitchen, not in your bedroom. And one of my kids made a little pretend phone out of wood. I mean, um, unbelievable craftsmanship to make this little fake phone that he would plug up every night and take his real phone up into his bedroom and fool his parents. So I, I just think that we cannot underestimate the the drive with which kids want this technology in their lives. So it's very important that we try to separate it out from the process of sleeping because there's nothing positive about the light, the content, or the ritual for their sleep. Okay. I've got some questions. Can we be as succinct as we can, upon my apologies, yes. so that we can get as far as we can. These sure. two are similar, although they're different age groups. What advice does your expert have in breaking a three-year-old's sleep pattern of getting out of bed repeatedly during the night? He has not learned to sleep confidently in his own bed. Similarly, another, my six-year-old can't sleep alone. In the depths of the night, he invariably wants to climb into bed with mum and dad. He does this on autopilot. We've tried reward charts, resettling him in his own bed, and haven't been able to stop the pattern. Yeah, I write about this in my book, so I'll be succinct. So I, I'm very specifically about it, that that generally what you're trying to accomplish here is to create a situation where the child's bedroom is favorable, preferable over your bedroom. So we used to take one of our children down the garage and we would clean up you know, dead bugs in the corner just nicely. It wasn't a punishment. It's like, hey, I'm getting ready to go down and clean some dead bugs here at two o'clock in the morning. I'm glad you're up. You could come down there and help me with that. I, a woman, a mother who was a patient, she and her daughter would clean toilets. So she walked into the bedroom at three o'clock in the morning. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. I got to quickly 
clean the toilet and then we'll get you back to bed. So eventually the child doesn't wake up out of fear. Like if there's the house is on fire, they're going to come get you. But they're thinking, ah, would I rather stay here or would rather clean a toilet? I think I'll probably just stay here. So it's about making the parent's bedroom just a little bit less appealing than it is right now. That's actually really interesting. Like if your bed is bigger and warmer and, you know, everything's lovely in your room, actually thinking, what can I make the equivalent of here or at least not have it being inferior? But you're actually talking about an intervention there, aren't you? You might actually have to have a plan that means you waking up Absolutely. and doing something to break to break the habit. Interesting. Yeah, um, it takes a little work. Yeah. Our 10-year-old girl, for at least the last four years, has had real trouble getting to sleep. She can lie in bed for hours until after 10 p.m., and desperately wants to sleep but can't. We've used melatonin every now and again for years, which works, but don't want to rely on it. She's a happy, active girl. There's there's the key, isn't it? Happy, active girl, which is not something you would see in somebody who is sleep-deprived. Number one, take a look at the National Sleep Foundation's recommendations for sleep amounts based upon age. It's shocking, the variation within children of how much sleep they need. So one thing you have to be very careful of is a lot of times kids can't sleep because you're asking them to sleep way more than they're genetically programmed to do. Number two, let her stay awake. That to me is not really a problem. I mean, just give her some books to read or some interesting, you know, pad and paper she can draw some pictures on. The key is to allow them to do that. The idea that she's not going to sleep does not happen now. When she finally falls asleep, whatever time that is, 3 a.m., you wake her up at 6 and start her day. And she may not be happy about it. She may feel tired. And your, your response is... Yeah, you're feeling a little tired because you didn't quite get enough sleep, and that's okay. Your body will correct that mistake tomorrow. So it's all about giving kids confidence because what she's lacking right now is confidence. She's like, should I come out and get the melatonin? And and melatonin could be another whole series of questions we have. I'm not a fan of it. It's misused. It's not a sleep aid. Your child can fall asleep without it. One more here. Uh, my child has trouble going between sleep and wake. As a toddler, he would cry inconsolably for 10 minutes or so after waking from a nap and then suddenly come right like a switch had been thrown. Now as an adult, he still struggles to get to sleep, needs to cut out light and sound. Can there be an issue going between wake and sleep? Uh, I've never answered the question, could there be followed by whatever with a no. I mean, certainly there can always be sort of underlying sleep problems there. But, you know, in terms of, you know, somebody's relationship with sleep, I, I just always tell people, look, we don't judge somebody's nutritional status by how fast they eat dinner. I would never judge somebody's sleep status by how quickly they fall asleep. So I'm always more concerned by somebody who can fall asleep quickly or somebody who falls asleep quickly and, and, and struggles to stay asleep. I think that's always a much bigger red flag than somebody saying, I really can't fall asleep right now. So the analogy I always use is we're not always hungry for lunch. Sometimes I would be shocked if I met a 50 year old who said, you know, I've never missed a meal before in my life. Never one. That would be really strange. I think it's almost built into the human condition that we skip lunch every now and then because we're not hungry. And that's the way we need to approach sleep, that it's not always going to be perfect, but our brains know exactly what they need in terms of sleep. And and, And we would be 
fools to think that we could prevent our brains from getting what we need. Nearly there, yeah, nearly there. But to that point about sleeping and waking again, because this is another thing, there's a bit of a myth, isn't there, about this perfect eight-hour sleep. I don't think I've ever, well, I've occasionally had them, but they're certainly not normal. (laughs) This person says, um, please ask about what people like me should do when I or they have no problem getting off to sleep. Sleep hygiene is followed, etc., but like clockwork, wake after three to four hours and then are not sure that the sleep after that is a good restorative sleep. Yeah, no, that's a great question. When you look at sleep, you divide the night in half. Most of the first half is deep sleep. Most of the the second half is is dream sleep or REM sleep. And so when somebody says to me, I fall asleep very easily, sleep pretty well for the first few hours, but then the second half is fragmented. It doesn't feel that great. It always makes me think that there may be something going on with REM sleep or dream sleep. And in an adult, uh, that can be a real prime sort of... uh, uh, story for somebody who might be de- de- developing a little bit of sleep apnea or breathing disturbances. So that would be a great reason to talk to a sleep doctor and, and maybe explore whether or not a sleep study might be right for that person. I, I certainly don't think that should be ignored. One for the parents of young babies, if you would, we have a three-month-old who only settles into sleep on our chests or similar cuddle. The moment we put her into a bassinet or a Moses basket, she'll stir awake. Any tips to change this and what longer-term sleep problems this might contribute to? Yeah, we were just talking about that in Atlanta. Um, Your child can sleep without being on your chest. Uh, Again, if you put that child in a little bouncy chair and watch them for a few hours, they, the one thing that they will do is they will sleep and they'll eat and they'll drink some fluid from here and there. So I think that you do run the risk of creating a bad association or a bad habit if you're using you know, breastfeeding, if you're using cuddling on the couch and sleeping on the chest as a way in which to get the child to sleep. You know, we really want to create a situation where the child is learning to put themselves to sleep on their own. And again, this can be hard work. You put the child down and two minutes later they're fussing and you have to walk in and you pick them up and you cradle, cradle them and you say, hey, I'm still here, don't worry, you know, I'm not going anywhere. And you put them down again. You know, you might feel like, you know, this is a whole lot easier for me to get some emails written if I just let the child fall asleep on my chest. They sleep every time, I don't have to worry about it. And I can lean over while they're on my chest and type something on an email. So just be careful what you're, what you're doing. I mean, all of these things are investments. And just keep in mind when it's a difficult patch that your child has to sleep. You know, we were pretty rigorous with our schedule. The nap time was 10 to 11. If they were messing around their crib until 10.55 and finally fell asleep, I woke them up at 11. And then my job was to keep them awake until the next nap, which was not easy when they wanted to fall asleep in the car seat and fall asleep in the stroller in the grocery store. So you kind of get what you give with these types of things. So I've never told a parent the right or wrong way to do it, but most parents come to our clinic looking for something that's predictable because when you can predict your child's sleep as an adult and a parent, you can get a lot more done. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Chris Winter, the rested child, why your tired, wired or irritable child may have a sleep disorder and how to help is his latest book, Neurologist and World Leading Sleep Expert.